Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. You know, it was earlier this year that I went to the eye doctor. Last year was the first time I'd been to the eye doctor in a really, really long time. But I was having some trouble with my right eye, so I thought I'd go see my friend Gabe Avila, and I told him about my predicament. And so he gave me some glasses that were similar to readers, and he said, use these. I think you've got some eye strain. Looking at a computer all day probably doesn't help. Use these and see if they do the trick. And sure enough, they did. In fact, they worked so well that I couldn't really see without them after a while. So I went back to Dr. Avila this year and I talked to him about how I can see better with my computer and also when I'm preaching, I said I look down, the words pop off the iPad, I can see them much better. But when I look up as I'm preaching, everybody else is blurry. And I said, I, I don't want to do this because I don't believe I'm old enough to do that yet. And he said, well, then the only other option is the B word. And I knew exactly what he meant, bifocals. And so here I stand with a form of bifocals. I think they're called progressives. I don't feel like I'm old enough to need progressives, but evidently I am. I asked Dr. Avila, I said, so why the sudden change? What, what caused this rapid decrease in my vision? He said, old age. And I'm paying the guy for this, right? What an eye-opening experience, for sure. I don't have to tell you that vision and perspective are highly important. When we see how we see, what we see, how we interpret what we see, pretty much means everything. And certainly that is the case when it comes to the church. Now, unfortunately, not everyone has 20-20 vision when it comes to church. In fact, there's a gentleman by the name of Tom Nelson that identified four distorted images of the church. The first one is the church as a gas station. That's where people just come in every Sunday to get refueled. They hear a sermon because they're running low, and that sermon fills them up to get through the week. The church is a gas station. Another distorted image is the church as a movie theater. For many people, they come to church, and hopefully they get a comfortable seat, and they sit back, and they are entertained by the singing or the lesson, and they walk out feeling better than when they walked in. The third distorted image of the church is the drugstore image. People come to church to get their prescription filled. They, they find something to soothe what's ailing them. And then the fourth distorted image is a big box retailer. There are those who view the church as a place that, that offers the best products in a safe, clean environment for you and your family. It's great service at a low, low price all in one stop. Some view the church as a producer of programs, all of them tailored to meet the desires of the customer. Now, it should be admitted that within all four of these distorted images, there is some truth. There are some things, some aspects to these four images that are absolutely true and valid and right. But none of them constitute what the church was intended to be. And it's important for us to understand these distorted images and any others that we might have. And it's important for us to understand the church and what it was meant to be because by and large, I think the biggest problem in the religious world today is that church has become an event. And because church has become an event, virtually everything about it has become event-oriented. It makes me wonder, are we mechanically challenged? You know, when my truck isn't running properly, when I hear the engine make a noise, I pop the hood and I look underneath. 
I look at the engine. I, I, I review everything that's going on under the hood. What am I looking for? I don't know. I have no clue. I don't know how to fix anything. I'm just looking at it because that's what you do as a guy. When something's wrong with your truck, you pop the hood and you look around to see if you can see anything. Not that I could fix it. That's why I take it to, to Johnny Ray Davis so he can fix it. And he could tell me anything that was wrong and I would buy it. He could say, well, you know, you need a new Johnson rod. Okay, sounds good. Put one in. Because I have no clue. I'm mechanically challenged. My mind doesn't work that way when it comes to machinery, especially the engine in my truck. And there are some that are that way when it comes to the church. They're mechanically challenged. They're just looking for an on-off switch. You know, I'm really, really good at putting the key in the ignition and turning it and stepping on the gas. That's what I'm good at. Show me an on-off switch. I can do that. So many don't understand how things fit together and work in the church. And so the question is, do we, as core members of the church, do we understand it or are we mechanically challenged? Now, I do want to pause and say this. Though many are visually impaired and mechanically challenged, we shouldn't be too hard on these folks. We've done this to ourselves. We bemoan the fact that too many Christians are selfish and make it all about themselves, but we have long fostered a consumer mentality. And you know what? I'm not sure that that's all bad either. I really don't care why you come to church, at least in the beginning. I don't care why you came through the doors and you sat in the pew. You're here. And that gives me an opportunity, right? Because the job of the church is, at least in part, to try to take the consumer and rescue them from a life of darkness and make them disciples, right? Some appeal to insiders while others appeal to outsiders, but there is no virtue in neglecting the latter. Jesus died for all people, including consumers, and consumers have the potential to become contributors. So let's not be fooled into thinking that there are only two options here. Either cater to the consumers just to keep them happy or ignore the consumers in an attempt to protect the frozen chosen. Because there's a third option. And that third option is to try and rescue the contributor or the consumer to make them a contributor. To help them understand why it is that they are here, why they need to be here, and why they need to be following Jesus. To reconcile them to God and recondition them for the mission of Jesus Christ. So instead of griping and complaining about consumerism in the church, let's seek to save the consumers. Here's something else. We cannot mention the vision or distorted vision that many have of the church without recognizing that we are a part of the problem. There's a principle in the marketplace that says your organization or your business is currently designed to get the results that it is currently getting. Brethren must admit that the vision of the church as an event or an activity or a place to go is the result of emphasizing the weekly over the daily. Notice Acts chapter 2. Larry read it a moment ago. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. It says, Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The key phrase there is day by day. 
You know, we, we want to focus on being the church of the first century. We often say that, that that's our goal, is to be the first century church. But often our emphasis is on what happened when they were together. And certainly that's not wrong. We do need to focus on what they did when they were together. But there was a lot more that occurred when they were outside of church when they were in day-to-day activity and involvement with one another. You see, this wasn't a weekly gathering of the church. They were an everyday church. They were a movement, not a monument. They didn't go to church and then go home and and, and go to bed or or go to work or, or whatever it was. Church wasn't a place, excuse me, that they went to. They didn't go there. Church wasn't an event was a people. You know, there's a scene in Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, where Han Solo is flying the Millennium Falcon along with uh, some of his rebel friends, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, they are trying to uh, evade the Imperial TIE fighters, and they slip into what they believe is a cavern. But as soon as they land the ship and get off, They notice some rumblings and grumblings. Things just aren't quite right. And so Han Solo takes out his weapon. He fires it into what he believes is the ground. And all of a sudden things start to shake and and they notice that something's wrong. They realize that they're not actually in a cavern. They're inside a living, breathing creature. And so they hop back on the Millennium Falcon and they escape just before the jaws of the giant sea slug clamp down. The point is this. We enter the auditorium, we walk in on solid ground, there's brick and mortar walls that surround us. This is, this is a sight, but what fills this sight is living stones. Han Solo and his rebel buddies thought that they were in a place, but they were mistaken. They were inside a living, breathing organism, and so are we as the church. Church isn't a place, it's a people. Church isn't an organization, it's an organism. We can create a robot and and have an organization, a bunch of uh, uh, parts working in harmony, but there's a big problem with robots, and that is they're not alive. And while an organism needs organization to function, the biggest difference in the two is that an organism lives and breathes and thinks and moves and grows and develops, and it all starts with the head. Without the head, the organism is lifeless. You remove the head and you, you see the body will follow. Look at what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. He says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in both the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now understand that in the context, Paul is addressing a problem. It's a problem with false teachers. These false teachers were promoting things like asceticism and angel worship. They were pushing doctrine that was nothing more than human philosophy and self-made religion. 
So Paul's goal was to make certain that the saints in Colossae would remain faithful and not fall prey to the falsehood being promoted by these false teachers. And I want you to notice his strategy. Notice how he combats the false ideologies of these false teachers. He does so by giving Jesus his resume. He reminds them of who Jesus is. And in doing so, he reminds the Colossians of who they are. It's so simple and so basic that we often miss it. We, we think that, we, that what makes us a Christian is the fact that we believe right things and that we do right things and that we have better morals and, and better politics. We think that making disciples is about having better programming or being more entertaining. But if that's the reason that people become disciples, that's the reason they're going to remain disciples. Paul doesn't get into all of that. He starts with Jesus, which is where we should all start. Everything is predicated upon who Jesus is, what he has done, and who we are as a result. Compared to Christ, Paul says the promoters of these contradicting, contradicting doctrines have nothing to offer that's worth anything. Look at the language again. Rescued, redemption, forgiveness of sins, firstborn of the dead, fullness of the Father, reconciler. I mean, Paul is spelling out the gospel, isn't he? These are gospel words. This is gospel language. And I love this because it's a reminder of the remaining, uh, of, of how we can remain faithful. And it starts with Jesus and the gospel. It's really pretty basic. You know, every year during spring training for baseball, the players get together and, uh, and they work on things. They work on fundamentals. They work on fielding ground balls, throwing to first base, Things that they've done thousands, if not millions of times. They even put the ball on a tee and go back to tee ball and work on their swing. The idea is you get back to the basics, and many times that's what we need to do as well. Paul does that here in Colossians. He goes back to Jesus, back to the gospel, back to the basics, and he talks about what defines us. It's the gas that keeps the vehicle running. Keep reading. Verse 21 and following. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. And so Paul starts with Jesus, gives his resume, then he turns to who we are, and he turns to what we were, formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, now reconciled, holy and blameless, beyond reproach. He's appealing to the Colossians and to their sense of identity. He's reminding them of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and who they are because of it. They were a new creature in Christ. They had been empowered to live a new kind of life. And you can keep reading in Colossians and see where Paul encourages the saints to allow their new humanity to be seen in every facet of their lives. I mean, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. You know that verse, Colossians 3, 16. And as Paul is spelling all this out, he throws these words into the mix. He is also head of the body, the church. Now, why is that significant? Because it's a reminder that without Jesus, there is no organism. He is the reason for all of this. And so when the church faces pressure or adversity, COVID or persecution or anything like that, we look to him. We look to the head. 
without Christ, we're like a rattler with its head cut off. And I'm sure you witnessed this. You cut off the head of a rattler and, and, the, and the body continues to move and squirm, but it's aimless. And it's no threat because the head has been removed, right? The church is the same way. It's aimless without the head. The head is what leads it, what gives it its function and its purpose. There is a parable about a group of animals that decided that they wanted to expand their horizons and improve their general welfare. And so they offered a school with curriculum that included swimming, running, climbing, and flying. There was a duck that was in the school. The duck was obviously a good swimmer, but he wanted to learn how to climb, and so he majored in climbing. There was a rabbit. The rabbit was a superior runner, but he wanted to learn how to fly, and so he majored in flying. There was a squirrel that was obviously a great climber, but the squirrel wanted to learn how to be a better swimmer, and so he majored in swimming. And there was an eagle who was a proficient flyer, but wanted to learn how to run, and so he majored in running. And you can probably guess what happened. None of the animals improved much in the areas in which they were deficient, and they even lost some of what they were really good at. And the moral of the parable is, of course, stick to what you're good at. Exploit the gifts and the talents that you have. You know, the message that we often send to the individuals in our world is you can be anything that you want to be. Whatever you set your mind to, you can achieve it. And I don't believe that's good advice because I don't believe that's true. I don't believe that you can be anything that you want to be. I don't care how bad I want it. I can never become an NBA player, mainly because I lack two things, size and talent. Two things that you absolutely have to have, right, to be an NBA player. There are things that you will never be able to become. There are things that you will never be able to accomplish. But if Scripture teaches us nothing, it teaches us that there is no such thing as a zero-talent individual, that everyone can be good at something, that everyone can do something. Each individual needs to recognize what it is that they bring to the table and then utilize that talent and exploit it to the fullest. Paul says it in a different way, but the same thing, starting in uh, verse 12, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. At the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. 
But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. In essence, Paul is saying here, the church is not a lifeless institution. It is a living, breathing, moving life form. We have got to stop thinking institutionally when it comes to the church. This mentality is killing us. An institution is commonly defined as an organization founded for a religious, educational, social, or similar purpose. And you look at that definition and maybe you say, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. That's who we are. So what's the problem? The problem is that our institutional way of thinking has led to us elevating law and practice and custom above relationship. It's caused a handful of individuals uh, to fulfill most of the organization's responsibilities, and it has caused the church to become a monument rather than a movement in many places. Look, this isn't Rotary. This isn't Abilene Country Club. This isn't PTA or Junior League or United Way. Not to say that any of those things are bad organizations. They're great organizations that do some great things. But what makes us different is that we are a blood-bought people. We are spirit-driven. We are Christ-led. This is a a rare life form comprised of a community of disciples through whom Jesus lives and works. Now, please understand the implications of the church as an organism and not an organization. The phrase body of Christ is more than a figure of speech. It describes a relationship and a role. We all have a role, and the success of this body is connected to me knowing my role and fulfilling that role, carrying out effectively. God designed the physical body and he made many parts for the purpose of helping it function properly. There are different parts, but there is only one body. And though there are different parts of the body, we all have a significant role to play. We all must understand what body part we are. Or else, if we're not carrying out our role, then the body becomes deformed, and it's not able to function. Paul was big on metaphors, and it's easy to see why he would use the physical body here as an illustration for the spiritual body that is the church. Every member has different abilities, and each member with his or her ability is important to the church. Every member needs the other members of the body in order for the body to function properly. And therefore, if you're a part of the body but not fulfilling your role, then your part of the body is dead, and the body itself is deformed, at least in that area. If you're not doing something, then someone else is having to pull your weight. And that's not to shame you into doing something. It's just to encourage you to be alive and to be active. And Paul is saying something else, I believe, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He's saying that there are no nobodies in the church. When I was in high school, I was watching the Dallas Cowboys play football, and one of their high-profile players, one of their highest-paid players, in fact, was sitting out a game because he had an injury. And the injury was described as turf toe. And I thought to myself, what a baby. I mean, so your toes hurt. I mean, get out there and play. Rub some dirt on it and get out there, right? Then, when I was playing football, I got turf toe. And you know what? Turf toe is painful. It's hard to even walk, much less maneuver and play football. I came to appreciate my big toe more than I ever had. 
when you don't have use of it or proper use of it, you appreciate it a lot more. We understand that there are no insignificant roles within the church. There are body parts that we may feel are insignificant, but when they become injured or we have to do without them, we learn to appreciate them so much more. All of us as body parts are vital because we contribute to the health of this body. You may even be a nose hair, an insignificant nose hair. You feel that you are an unnecessary part of the whole. You may feel as though you don't contribute much of anything, but do you know what would happen if you didn't have nose hair? Nose hair are vital to keeping out foreign particles. It's, they're our first defense a lot of times to bacteria. Nose hair helps to trap larger foreign particles that could cause sickness. Nose hair also help provide heat and moisture. Dr. Oz says, stop plucking your nose hair. You need them. Without nose hair, you become more prone to allergy attacks and sinusitis and respiratory infections. You need nose hair. It's important. You're important. Even if you feel like a tiny nose hair, that is insignificant and doesn't really do anything or provide any real purpose, you're wrong. The church needs you. There are no nobodies in the church. Maybe you remember in uh, grade school playing a sport like kickball. And you have two captains that pick teams and everybody else lines up against the wall and the captains take turns picking out who they want on their team. And with each person they pick, you're left standing against the wall and it becomes clearer and clearer that you don't matter much. Finally, they get down to the last person chosen and maybe you're it or maybe you were close to the last one. You remember that last person that was chosen and the two team captains look at each other and say, well, you can have him or you can have her. I I don't need him. Maybe that's how you feel. Maybe you feel insignificant. Maybe you feel like you don't contribute much of anything to the church maybe you feel like you're invaluable uh, that you're that you're not valuable that you're the last pick but understand that there is an I and team that you are a vital part of this organism's mission and livelihood you're not an afterthought you're the reason for this whole thing the cross was for you so instead of coming to church and jetting out like the millennium falcon Instead of treating church like an event, instead of just coming for the quality resources, treat church like it was meant to be treated. A living body, a living organism that you are an integral part of.